Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. There's a lot been made of the, you know, bipartisan history of successful referendums in this case. But I think it's hard to draw a conclusion yet because there's a few things that are different. Obviously, the Yes campaign has to do a fair bit of work in the weeks ahead, but I, I wouldn't write it off just yet. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Guardian's Australian Politics Podcast. I'm Paul Karp, Chief Political Correspondent, and today I'm joined by Defence and Foreign Affairs Correspondent Daniel Hurst and political reporter Josh Butler. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. (laughs) For regular listeners, you'll know this means we're doing another Ask Us Anything episode. First, we got a lot of questions about political editor Catherine Murphy, who is still on leave. We'll let her know listeners miss her and send best wishes. But yes, she will be back doing the podcast in future. First up, we had a lot of questions about the Indigenous uh, voice. We'll kick off with Josh. Uh, Kate G asks, why is it not illegal to include misinformation in the official voice pamphlet? And Sandra Simpson would like to know, why is the Yes campaign allowing the No campaign to argue people should vote No to focus instead on outcomes like closing the gap? Well, first on the on the pamphlet, um, it's not illegal to include disinformation in the pamphlet because it's not illegal and the government and the opposition agreed to actually not make it illegal. So this goes back to a couple of months ago when we were debating the Referendum Machinery Act bill, which is like basically the rules that govern the the referendum. And in that was rules around the pamphlet. Um, people might remember that the government actually wanted to get rid of the pamphlet to start with. Um, they said it was outdated and not really necessary for 2023, but they brought it back on in an attempt to get opposition support for the referendum, which sort of mostly hasn't come out. There were independents like David Pocock and Zali Stegel who did try and put in some provisions around misinformation and fact-checking and, and, and things like real-time donation disclosures in that legislation, but those amendments were defeated. Um, The government did that on the principle that they wanted to basically align the referendum rules to the rules that were at regular elections. And because we don't have those things at regular elections, they didn't want them at the referendum. Now, this sort of goes into something that you've done a lot more reporting on than I have, Paul, but around the results of the Electoral Matters Committee that was looking at some of these provisions, the government basically said when they were doing the referendum machinery bill, they said, we're not going to do, you know, the fact checking and and that sort of stuff now, but we will, you know, look at them again in the future, pending the results of that electoral matters committee, basically a bit of a TBA, watch this space at this point. The rules at this moment now on on the referendum, on on the pamphlet are basically politely asking people to please not put misinformation into the pamphlet because there's no rules against it. And the AEC, the Electoral Commission, which is collating the pamphlet, also legally has no role in fact-checking or editing the yes and no essays. They've repeatedly said, we're just going to print what the politicians write for the yes and the no essays. So that sort of all rounds out to when the pamphlet does arrive on your doorstep, which will be in the next maybe couple of months, maybe two months. Word of warning, read it carefully, do your research and take it with a bit of a grain of salt, I think. The second question about 
why is the yes campaign allowing the no campaign to argue those things? It, it is sort of tricky. There have been questions about the strategy of the yes campaign so far. Personally, I've found that the yes campaign often sort of declines to respond directly to the no campaign. They don't really want to engage on on the grounds that the no campaign is trying to trying to set. You know, the yes campaign is trying to run their own race. They don't want to get into a public slinging match with the no side. And that has irked some supporters who do want them to fight it back a bit more, especially as the campaign is getting a bit more personal, a bit more negative at the moment. But I think broadly there will be that rhetoric going forward about, you know, why focus on the voice when X issue exists and we could fix it today. I mean, you know, to go back to that closing the gap question, like never mind that don't forget the coalition was in power for a decade. Those closing the gap targets were still not on track. They haven't been on track. So it's not like things were going really well before and Labor's changed course and suddenly things are bad. I guess this kind of is the whole point of the voice really when the government talks about it is they're saying things haven't worked for a long time. So now let's do something different. I think this will be the strategy, though, from opponents of The Voice. We're already seeing it this week, even from Peter Dutton, sort of insinuating that people's bills are going up because the government's focusing too much on The Voice and not the cost of living, which I think is a frankly absurd and sort of almost offensive argument to make. But I think we will be seeing more of that rhetoric as we go forward. Mm-hmm. And Tasha asks also about The Voice, what are the demographics of people changing their mind on The Voice? It's hard to say that at this point, I think, because, you know, obviously I think people would have seen a lot of different polls that are going around at the moment showing different results. The Guardian poll, for instance, shows, a, I think, a clear majority of people still supporting The Voice. Um, the Guardian is a central poll. Other polls have it, you know, more, more sort of neck and neck. I think at this point, it's hard to say exactly who is changing their mind I think the the broadest thing we can say is that people who were maybe previously saying yes are now maybe a bit more unsure or or maybe moving towards that sort of soft no position. I think uh, I think the yes vote is strongest amongst uh, women, young people, and progressive voters. So Greens voters especially, but also Labor supporters, and so older voters tend to be more in favour of no. And I think that means that the sort of critical demographics are going to be more older millennials, Gen X and younger second wave boomers are more more mixed and in the middle. In terms of like where the vote's been going down, there was a moment earlier in the year where progressive support and young people's support dipped slightly. Uh, it could have been when the progressive no case that Lydia Thorpe mm. was making got a lot of attention, but that was just a blip. That wasn't a long-term trend. Support's still very high in the in the 80s for young people and uh, and and Greens voters. So I think it's it's more older men in regional areas that are sort of weighing it down at at, at the moment as as demographics that the, the yes side hasn't persuaded uh, as much as they would like. I can ask you a question, Paul. Here, there's one from Jaden who's asked, history and polling points towards the referendum losing. What actually is the possibility of a successful referendum? And Daniel, your thoughts on that as well? Let's start with Daniel. Okay, sure. In the hot seat. Um, Yeah, look, there's a lot been made of the, you know, bipartisan history of successful referendums. In this case, the coalition is a definite no. But I think it's hard to draw a conclusion yet because there's a few things that are different. Basically, you have strong support from all state and territory leaders, including the Tasmanian Liberal Premier. There's also, you know, it has been a long time since the last big referendum. And I think people are getting their information in different ways. I actually don't think it's lost at this point. Obviously, the Yes campaign has to do a fair bit of work 
in the weeks ahead, but I, I wouldn't write it off just yet. Yeah, I mean, I think the history is very bad. I think it's eight out of 44 referenda have been successful. Labor also has a particularly bad record when they're the ones in office. Um, I don't know if voters are just more sceptical about progressive change when it's a progressive government in uh, or the coalition deny bipartisan support when it's something that Labor is proposing. So I think it's very tough. Yes, previous referenda were not in a time of social media when there was more of an ability for politicians or campaigns to speak directly to voters. But based on the way the polls are going, it seems like those differences haven't so far stopped it from a familiar pattern of might start with reasonably good support, but it, it can fall away quickly. I might just add two quick ones before we go to the next question. Um, there's, there's a really interesting dichotomy, maybe not the right way, but sort of like an interesting sort of parallel here because, and, and as the opposition, the coalition keeps saying, there is such high support for um, uh, constitutional recognition of Indigenous people. And I think David Littleproud even said this week, you know, if, if it was, if that was a referendum, the, you know, the coalition would help them print the ballots and that sort of thing. So that obviously is half of the referendum. The, you know, the, the referendum is about constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people through the mechanism of a voice to the government and to the parliament. And we saw it in the the Yes campaign's you know, most recent set of ads that they really highlighted the constitutional recognition part, which is a part that has very high support. I think it's in the 80s or 90s on recent polling. But obviously there are questions about the voice, which is realistically it's a consultation body it's an advisory body it's just like however many other dozen bodies the government has that advises it on stuff and the government takes the advice or politely says no thank you to the advice it'll be another one of those people i don't think really understand what it's don't really understand yet what it's about and i think that is the challenge of the government and the yes campaign to maybe explain more simply that it is just one of these things that exists and yes it'll be in the constitution but this is not some radical, outrageous, you know, pulled from the sky idea. This, this, these things already exist and, you know, no one really bats two eyelids at them. So I think it will come down to whether people in the ballot box on the day look at it and go, you know, I like constitutional recognition uh, of the idea that's very popular and, and pretty uncontroversial. If I do have a question about the voice, is that enough of a question for me to vote no to the thing that I actually back, which is constitutional recognition? So I think that is sort of the central thrust of the campaign from now on, whether people will say no to the whole referendum because they might have a question about the voice or whether they say yes to it, even though they might, you know, not quite understand it or not quite, you know, get their head around it yet because the referendum is bundled up with constitutional recognition, which is something that a lot of people undoubtedly support. Can I add one very quick point, which is this newfound call from the Coalition for Constitutional Recognition as, as itself. Mm. They had nine years in power in the most recent stint and they didn't yes. put that to the public. So, you know, just taking that position, mm. uh, uh, I think put that in context. I think that's important to point out that they didn't put that simple proposition to mm. the public when they were in office. Good context. Let's change tack a little bit and I'll ask a couple of questions on this one. We got a bunch of questions on the Anti-Corruption Commission and sort of, you know, in a related ballpark of government integrity and that sort of thing on the robo-debt as well. Paul, we've got a question here about the Prime Minister previously indicating that it would be inappropriate for parliamentarians to refer matters to the NAC, specifically in regards to the Brittany Higgins compensation payout, for instance. But the Greens and Linda Reynolds are also now lining up to make their own referrals. Was the PM right about that? Is there some merit to the question here? Is there some merit to Barnaby Joyce's claim about politicisation? 
I think that Anthony Albanese might have overstated it slightly. I think he meant it was inappropriate to direct the National Anti-Corruption Commission uh, what to investigate or what matters to take on. I don't think there's anything wrong with just making a referral. And, you know, Paul Brereton, the, the commissioner, did say that tips could come from anyone. But he did also warn that he didn't want to see referrals being weaponized, and he said he wouldn't hesitate to call out anyone who might make a referral that didn't have a solid basis to it. So I think everyone's on notice that if you've got a genuine corruption issue, even if you're a politician, you can make a referral. But people also then take on a risk that if there isn't enough evidence in the public domain and they're just doing it to get a headline to criticise a political opponent, make it life difficult for them, that there's a chance that the, the knack could embarrass the person making a referral by saying, you know, not even close, frivolous, vexatious, etc. So we'll see when he exercises that power if people making the referrals uh, have egg on their face or not. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> um, there's another question here. Maybe we can all jump in on this one. Um, one question from Marn asking, will the knack be a toothless tiger? Uh, it remains to be seen. I think maybe the question is motivated by the compromise that was made in negotiations to get bipartisan support about the conditions in which there would be public hearings. So I think this will do a lot of its work behind the scenes. Um, I don't think Paul Brereton, who oversaw the um, inquiry into alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, will be shy about exercising his powers, but um, I, I think we'll just have to wait and see. We won't expect as many public hearings necessarily as New South Wales ICAC might have held, but I don't think it'll be shy in making sort of systemic findings and uh, setting the record straight when it needs to. Yeah, I mean, I'd love public hearings, but, you know, just because it doesn't have them, it, it's still got a lot of very strong powers. It can still tap your phones. It can still compel people to give to give evidence and to produce documents and all the rest of it. So it's still an extremely uh, powerful body, uh, that notwithstanding, yeah. Uh, yeah, he did also make the point of that opening that its job is not to make findings of criminal guilt. It's a different standard of proof and it's different focus. It's about corruption and improper, you know, use of public purposes and not just by politicians, of course, but by public servants and also contractors who perform government services or assist government. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. That's a really good point. Like exactly what sort of matters it will make sort of focus itself on? As the question sort of asked there, you know, the Greens and others have, you know, got a list of things they want to refer. And I think Berisha said they'd, they'd received 44 complaints or 44 referrals already in the first couple of days. I'm sure that number's higher by now. But it'll be interesting to see what it does concern itself with and what sort of things it goes after, like whether it will take a really hard line on things like pork barrelling and that, that's sort of like, you know, what stand that it sort of decides to, to concern itself with. All right. Turning to Daniel, we've had a question about the recent visit of the Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Uh, the questioner asks, how damaging has AUKUS been to our relationship with Indonesia and is it being discussed between the leaders at the moment? What I'd say is it sort of, it was very damaging in 2021 when it was first revealed under the Morrison government that they were pursuing this, partly because the Indonesian Foreign Minister, Retno Masudi, found out about it from the media before she was properly briefed, which is not a good move uh, with a neighbour as important as Indonesia. And so the shock of it in 2021 
certainly was difficult to manage in the relationship between Indonesia and Australia. Indonesia's never been keen on AUKUS. Indonesia has been making the point that it doesn't want an arms race to be accelerated in the region. Indonesia is also very strong on pushing for nuclear non-proliferation standards to be upheld. And the Australian government's always said that they will uphold those standards, but the, the concern has lingered, of course. And what I'd say is there's been a constant communication between Indonesia and Australia since that 2021 announcement. And it seems to have eased somewhat. I just point to the fact that it wasn't mentioned in the joint communique issued this week after the leaders' meeting. doesn't mean it wasn't talked about behind the scenes. But back a few months ago when the Indonesian Foreign Minister and Defence Minister visited, there were some assurances given by the Australian ministers that they would be transparent with Indonesia and keep updating them about it. I think there was a lot of work done before the big San Diego announcement in March this year by this government and by officials to brief Indonesia. And it's interesting to point out that last week, uh, the Australian Financial Review's Southeast Asia correspondent had an interview with Joko Widodo before he came to Australia, and he said that he has to re respect the Australian decision. So I think it's, I think the concerns aren't, haven't gone away, but I think it's been diffused. Hmm. And we've got a few uh, on the economy. Uh, one from Richard, which is uh, notes that some of the RBA board want unemployment to rise in order to lower inflation. So does the RBA want Australians to live in poverty? Uh, Daniel and Josh, what do you think about that? I was just going to start by saying that I don't think they necessarily want Australians to live in poverty, but the RBA's role is very focused on the inflation target, trying to get inflation back to within the 2 to 3% band. They do also have a focus on full employment, but full employment doesn't mean every single person in a job. And this sort of feathers were ruffled recently by Michelle Bullock, the Deputy Governor's speech, when she talked about how unemployment was expected to rise to 4.5% by late 2020. 24, and she didn't suggest that this was necessarily a bad thing. She said that this is more, this is closer to a sustainable balance point. Uh, and of course, that sort of <laughs> suggested that it sounded like they were happy for unemployment to increase. But all I'd say is that, you know, RBA is pretty focused on inflation and arguing that if inflation remains too high for too long, then that has a damaging effect on people as well and uh, hurts the the disadvantaged particularly hard. So, you know, not here to defend the RBA necessarily, but it has a very focused task. They, they, they do sort of talk about it as like a um, lesser of two evil sort of thing, don't they? But I mean, as, as you sort of touched on, like it is very um, sort of impersonal and, and, and sort of heartless, maybe the wrong word, but, you know, to sort of talk about, oh, you know, we've got to get, you know, 1% more of people unemployed or 2% or whatever the number is to, you know, so that the line can keep going up. It is hard to forget, I think, that there are re regular, you know, real people at the bottom of this, like someone who loses their job, who goes in unemployment. Yes, that, that, you know, helps the RBA get closer to what they want to do. And, you know, people having less money by being unemployed means that you have less money to spend in the economy and, and all these sort of things all add up. But probably cold comfort to someone who loses their job and is suddenly on the employment queue. And I think this goes back to some of the stuff, you know, that obviously there was so much talk about this around the job seeker rate when when there was, you know, debate about whether the government would increase job seeker by, you know, the couple of dollars that it did in the last budget. When that debate was all going on, you know, there was a lot of commentators saying, oh, why don't people just go get a job? Like it's never been easy to get a job. There's all these job vacancies in cafes and da-da-da. But it's like, on the one hand, the RBA is saying we need more people to be unemployed. 
and people are saying, oh, just go find a job. It's so easy to find a job. It's like, well, the RBA's like whole, you know, strategies around X number of people being unemployed. So like you have to give those people some sort of support and just saying, oh, you know, go find a job, go work in a cafe, go pick berries on a farm or something doesn't really, doesn't really add up, does it? Mm-hmm. For me at least. Mm. Relatedly, uh, Don MacArthur asks, how might the politics of a huge surplus play out, uh, noting that it's been revised upwards from about $4 billion to about $19 billion. Um, Will the public expect some of it, the, that surplus to be spent rather than banked? Pro- probably, uh, but the government has already used, I think, was it $2 billion on the housing announcement? So they're using some of it, but I think this is a sort of short-term surplus rather than, you know, the budget is structurally mm. fixed. So I think the trajectory is still that there's a lot of pressure on the budget in the coming years. So it's not as if it's going to be this huge surplus forevermore. I think people will see the bigger bigger surplus will think, why can't I have some more help at the time mm. I'm doing it tough? And the government's been trying to make the point that they don't want to work country to the RBA <laughs> on inflation. Mm-hmm. I think it will be tough for them because the surplus went from what was like $4 billion to I think $19 billion at the last count and they're probably doing some final calculations now of what it's going to be. But, you know, I think it will be tough for the government to get, to get away with not splashing out, as you said, like, you know, something else like the, the $2 billion for housing, like a, another couple of little announced, not that, you know, it's a little amount of, amount of money, but like in the grand scheme of things are, you know, smaller amount of money here and there now that they've found some more money down the back of the couch. I- I think they've left themselves flexibility to spend more of it, but the first instinct is mm. is to save it. Save so, most of it, yeah. So, like, uh, the Prime Minister and uh, Finance Minister Katie Gallagher in their first round of mm. interviews after the rate uh, did not increase on Tuesday what, was to say we want fiscal and monetary policy going in the right direction, yeah. um, which which implies uh, saving together, more of yeah. it. Yeah, uh, working together. And so they, they didn't rule out spending uh, more of it, but... Um, uh, I think the first instinct is 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 to spend as, as little of mm. as possible, but of course you're, you're right in that there's a pressure there, in that the Greens are mm. already saying, well, you know, they found the two billion for housing, and you know, here's here's 19 million surplus this year. Yeah, so yeah exactly. What's, what's your excuse? It'll be it'll be interesting on, on that point. I mean, the government keeps talking about you know number one how much of in their first like little mini budget they redirected you know 90 percent of this excess money into the bottom line or you know, something to that effect. I think they would have to you know probably follow a similar sort of strategy there. But at the same time, on the flip side, they're talking about how a lot of their measures around um, reducing energy bills and that sort of thing are, you know, not going to be inflationary because of the way that they've set them up. So, you know, again, I'm not an economist or an energy policy expert or anything like that, but I would imagine that they might be looking for things in, in that sort of ballpark, maybe not like, you know, direct cash grants to people and that sort of stuff, but, you know, maybe something on the other side of reducing bills before they hit people's pockets. There's a couple of more questions for you here, Paul, on still in the ballpark of the NAC and that sort of thing around uh, donations and consultants. Simon Rosenberg suggests NAC referrals are likely to come out of dodgy deals with donors and argues neither that Labor or the Coalition have shown much interest in donation reform. Will it take a minority government to get real action. And a second person, Strangerous10, asks, how can we stop big firms like the big four from donating to major parties while working on government contracts? Right. 
Well, uh, Labor went into the election with a policy of reducing the disclosure threshold for donations down to $1,000 and having real-time uh, disclosure of donations. So there is some will for reform there. Don Farrell told me in an interview in July last year that they were also going to do spending caps and truth in political advertising. So he added to their election policy by confirming that they were looking at a broader package. And that joint stand Committee on Electoral Matters, which Josh mentioned earlier, reported back in June of this year saying, yes, truth in political advertising, yes, spending caps and also donation caps. But it didn't say what level the spending and donation caps should be set at. So we're still waiting for the government response to that report and we're waiting for draft legislation to explain, you know, how much people will be allowed to donate and how much parties and campaign groups will be able to spend. But that is a pretty ambitious uh, suite of electoral reforms that they've proposed. Uh, It includes the truth in political advertising, which going back to the answer about voice, could stop misinformation if that were legislated. But the questionnaire is right in the sense that there is, you know, an appetite for even more action from the Greens who want to ban political donations from certain categories of donors. So gambling companies, alcohol companies, developers, consultants, fossil fuels. So they've got they've got a, a list of, of evils that they want to deal with by a donation ban. And that's going to be an important part of the negotiation to get whatever bill the government comes up with through the Senate to see if they're willing to do any of those things. And that also addresses Strangers tends question about how do we stop consulting firms from donating because, you know, PwC and KPMG and those companies that rely a lot on government contracts for their work, they do make political donations and there is going to be a lot of, a lot of pressure uh, from the Greens for, for Labor to ban those. So it will, be, it will be interesting to see whether that is part of the conversation. Next topic, we've got a question on climate change. Paul Meek uh, asked one question and we got a similar one from Sharon M. They ask, uh, the UN declared a worldwide El Nino uh, and with climate havoc in the Northern Hemisphere for their summer currently, how prepared is Australia for the coming summer and bushfire season? Daniel, do you want to take that one? Uh, Well, it's pretty sobering this week. Um, There was also a declaration that uh, Monday... Uh, and then quickly eclipsed on Tuesday were both um, well, Monday became the hottest day on record for the world and then Tuesday eclipsed that as the hottest day on record uh, recorded temperature wise we would hope that Australia would be prepared because Labor made such a show of uh, criticising the Morrison government's preparedness particularly in the lead up to uh, was it the 29-2020 bushfires which were particularly severe There's been a lot of discussion about the role of the Australian Defence Force. The Defence Strategic Review a couple of months ago pointed out that there was increasing pressure on the ADF and that it shouldn't be seen as a first responder. It should be a last resort because it's starting to affect the ADF's own readiness. So there's ongoing talks, I think, with the state and territories about what the options are for sort of broader reform about how we respond to disasters within Australia. But yes, it's, you know, Murray, what the emergency management minister's pretty focused on on this issue but (laughs) it's hard to say we're prepared until we actually see you know the results of it 
All right. We've got a question on housing. Uh, Nate Dorg asks, uh, there were climate independence in 2022. Do you think there'll be housing reform independence in the 2025 federal election, Josh? That's an interesting question. Um, I think there'll be a lot more focus on housing in the next election. I think the Greens have explicitly said that they want to be the party of renters. And I think that is something that they're going to go to the next election with. I think you know, housing reform and independence in the same mould as climate independence will be very tricky. And I think more broadly, this is a different discussion. I, I, I do wonder whether um, a lot of those climate independence, um, you know, the, the community independence teals, whatever people like to call them, I do question how many of those will get back into the next election. I know that Labor is targeting a couple of those seats and the coalition will be hoping to win a couple of them back without the um, baggage that held them down at the last election, namely Scott Morrison and and other um, folks that were prominent in the coalition at the time. I just don't know if there will be the same venom about government inaction on housing as there was about government inaction on climate at the last election. You, you got to think back. It wasn't just that all, all these teals suddenly went, oh, we, we really care about the climate and people just voted them in. It was a real interesting and, and very clever politics and, and campaigning from Climate 200 that figured out where the coalition was vulnerable in a, in a couple of seats and, and put money behind candidates that they thought had a real chance of knocking over sitting MPs, I mean. Obviously, they were all coalition MPs and they were ones that talked a big game on climate, but but weren't good at getting the results. So, the, the, you know, the, the campaign against them was able to say, you know, this person, sitting MP is a good person. Obviously, they're talking about climate, but they're not getting anything done. Voting someone who's going to get stuff done. I don't know if there'll be that same venom about Labor, because Labor is actually doing some stuff on housing. They're doing, you know, they say they're doing a lot on housing and they have an ambitious housing agenda. Obviously, the Greens want them to do more and, and independents want them to do more. But I would question if it's the same level of action on housing as the coalition took on climate, if that makes sense. So maybe I've worded that poorly, but I don't think there's, a, there's that same anger about inaction on housing from Labor as there, there was about inaction on climate from the coalition. Daniel? I think it could become a potent issue depending on how the next couple of years play out. Because you know, Labor has started trying to legislate the Housing Australia Future Fund, which is it's a sort of hard one to sell to the general public because it's talking about it setting up a revenue stream for future construction, you know, year by year. The sort of direct investment is more likely to have more immediate results. But again, unlocking supply, you know, it's we won't see the results necessarily immediately. And so, you know, a groundswell could build. Um, and I think the Greens are politically been quite clever in targeting renters because the proportion who rent is much higher than the current Greens primary vote share. So there's a growing opportunity there. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be an important issue. And you've you've mentioned the Greens campaigning on renters. The coalition also, Peter Dutton's first budget reply, he recommitted to the uh, using a chunk of your soup for housing uh, policy that they took to the last election. So we know there's going to be a big contrast between the coalition and Labor on housing going into the next election. Coalition MPs, when they lost Aston, they mentioned housing as one of the things that they need to rebuild their recovery on. And also I'd make the point that picking up from what Josh said, that the Teals were able to target the coalition's weaknesses on, you know, women, integrity and climate. Uh, 
they, let's let's not forget that you know they're not famous for having housing policies, but they could take an offering into the next election as well uh, to deal with you know capital gains tax or negative gearing. My mobile phone is actually obviously still on a list that gets robo polled as if I still lived in North Sydney, and I got a robo poll uh, the other day that was asking very curious questions about whether Anthony Albanese was uh, and Labor were doing enough on climate change and were doing enough on cost of living, particularly housing. So someone out there is investigating whether the Teals need to muscle up to labour on housing, which I thought was interesting. Mm. All right. Uh, last question uh, is on health. And Jonathan Gadier asks, at the last election, Labor promised 24-hour medical centres, which I believe is the urgent care clinics, uh, like most other countries have. Is anything happening on that? Uh, Josh, do you want to take that one? Jonathan, I have an update for you on that. Mark Butler, the health minister's office, tells us yeah, as of yesterday, there are 11 Medicare urgent care clinics already open. There's nine in Victoria and two in WA. Obviously, only two states there. But Butler's office also notes that there are a number of other ones that are close to opening and they list one provider announced in WA, two providers announced in Northern Territory, three selected in Tasmania that will be announced shortly and up to four clinics in New South Wales with providers to be announced no timeline on that. They don't say shortly on that one. The government is reiterating that they have said that uh, the 50 clinics that they promised would be open at the 23-24 financial year. So we're just into the 23-24 financial year now. So they've got you know, the best part of a year to get most of these up and running. Just doing some quick maths there. There's 11 that are already open. One, two, three, six, ten, you know, ten more that are in the works. That's 21. 50 minus 21 is, you know, 29. So there's still a fair bunch to go. It'll be really interesting to see where these are all open up and where and when. Um, the coalition has already been um, making some hay out of the fact that they haven't all opened yet or that there are only a couple open. There was some talk earlier in the year about exactly what Labor's promise was, whether it was to open them by a year of being being in government, which was, you know, middle of this year, or whether it will be by the end of this coming financial year. So 23, um, you know, 23, you know, middle of 2023 or end of 23, 24. So there's some um, uh, debate there about what that promise actually was. The government saying they've got more time than the coalition says they have. Yeah, I think the incentive is always to make it sound like they're coming as soon as possible. A bit more ambiguous, uh, but then, yeah. But then when, then when the end of the 2022-23 mm. financial year rolls around, you point to the other statements that said that you would have another another year to do it. Got, so to, got to hedge your bets. The, the ABC rated this in its promise tracker in uh, in May. It, may. it rated this promise stalled. Maybe if they were doing it again today, they would say in progress rather than stalled. But first or second gear. <laughs> all right. I think that may be all we have time for. Thank you for all your questions. We got a great spread on a lot of very different topics. So thank you to everyone that contributed. Sorry if we didn't get round to yours. We'll come back in a, in a few months and do another one of these, I'm sure. So try us again then. And thanks, uh, Daniel and Josh, for joining. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey, Jane Lee here. I'm one of the hosts of Full Story. 
And I want to tell you about a way you can catch up on some of The Guardian's award-winning journalism. It's in print and it gets delivered to your door no matter where you are in Australia. The Guardian Weekly magazine is our global news magazine, which features in-depth articles, including pics from Guardian Australia's editors. It comes out once a week and it can help you make sense of a busy news cycle. You can currently sign up and buy your first 12 issues for $12. That's just a dollar an issue. But this offer won't be around forever, so go and subscribe today at theguardian.com forward slash weekly Australia. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.